Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we mentioned last week, our daughter, one of our daughters, daughter number three, is moving to Provo, Utah. So she's been showing her house this week. So yesterday we had her four dogs at our house. There was just, and our one dog, there was just too much dog energy in our house. We, we were outside, and I said, are the dogs okay inside? And she said, sure. And then she looked in the window, and the dog was sitting, standing on top of the kitchen table. And that was the biggest of the dogs. Three, four weeks ago, we started the book of First Peter. We went through the prologue, then we had a long discussion about salvation. Starting in verse 3, there's a fabulous description of what God has done for us. Last week, we talked about suffering and trials and what genuine tested faith is. Because genuine tested faith brings glory to God and, by the way, to us too. We mentioned at the very beginning that if you read one of Paul's letters, it's very distinct in that usually there's this discussion of theology, and then halfway through it, he stops and starts the application. This is what you need to do about it. Peter is different than that. He is going to discuss theology for a while, and then he's going to say, therefore, you need to do this for a few verses. And then he'll go back to the theology and back and forth. So today we're reaching that first therefore. Therefore, because of what God has done for us, because of the fact that we have salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to do? So we pick up in verse uh, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." That's the passage we're going to try to make it through today. It could happen. Maybe we'll just race through it and go on to the next verse. Who knows? It is interesting because as I read this, I see this series of commands, things that we are told to do. And if you remember, last week we had a discussion about this. We had the discussion because I want to stop having the discussion. I just do, okay? As a general principle in life, I don't want to have this discussion anymore. But you know what? I have to have this discussion. (laughs) We are saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we are called to do certain things. We are not, they are not suggestions. They are commands. Well, are you saying that I've got to do these in order to be saved? Didn't I just tell you no? but you didn't believe me. We are saved by grace, and because of the transformation that God has made in our lives, we are going to do, we are commanded to do certain things. Now, that doesn't mean 
that sin's not alive and well and trying to keep us from doing those things and leading us to do something else. Otherwise, Peter would not be making the comments in this paragraph that I just read. When we are saved, we are declared to be righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then we are commanded to work that out in our daily life through the provision of the Holy Spirit. So when we work through these and other passages in Peter about things we're supposed to do, they are commands from the sovereign Lord of the universe. We ought to pay attention to them. They are also commands that he has empowered us to be able to do. Because if that was not the case, we really would be without hope. So I see this list of commands. It is interesting. I, I make no claim at all to understand Greek anything, okay? What does a Grecian earn? About a buck fifty an hour. It's a really bad joke. But apparently, in the Greek, there's really only two commands in this, this section that I just read. The rest of them are supporting material for those two commands. The two commands are have hope and be holy. But in order to do that, we need to prepare our minds. We need to be sober-minded. We need to put off our passions that we had when we lived in ignorance. So let's talk about this for a while. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. What does it mean to prepare our minds? And what is the action for which we are preparing our minds to do? And why would Peter start here? Why? There is this myth, and I'm going to call it a myth because people have used it forever and they use it so often they think it's true, that somehow Christians are called to ignore the thinking process and just blindly follow what the Bible or some religious leader tells them to do. You will not find that in the scripture, ever. We are called to live by faith. We are called to accept the fact that there are things that our mind cannot understand. We're called to accept that. But God also says, come let us, us, reason together. We are told to love the Lord our God with all our mind. What does that mean? Why does he tell us to prepare if you read the King James Version, the phrase is, gird up your mind, okay? Normally, when you see the phrase, gird up something, it's not your mind, okay? We talked last week about Greek-Roman soldiers. 
So you're a, a soldier and you're walking around and you've got your robe on, your tunic of some sort, and you're getting ready to go to battle. Well, you know, you don't move very well in this dress. So you pull it up, you put your belt around it, you gird up your loins so that you are ready for battle. You get yourself prepared. And what we're told to prepare here is our mind. What is our mind? In my worldview class this week, we actually had a discussion about what is known as the mind-body problem. You think, I hope you think, you think, what's doing the thinking? Is it just this organ in your head, your body, or is there an independent mind that works with the organ in your body, an immaterial and a material, that brings about your thoughts? The Christian perspective is that, yes, there is an independent and a physical side of it. Both are present. Modern psychology would say, no, it's only synapses in your brain doing stuff, and that's what you think about. I hate to tell you this story, but it's just so interesting to me. How many of you do Sudoku's? Okay, I do killer Sudoku's, and I do them every day. I used to say it was my COVID test because if my brain is still working. So I was doing one two days ago, and I was convinced the puzzle was wrong. I really was. I had I made an Excel spreadsheet on this thing, and the thing just didn't work out. So I just set it aside and went and did another one just real quick. Okay. At 3 o'clock the next morning, I woke up and I knew what I had done wrong. I mean, I did. That was the weirdest thing. But what it says is our minds are interesting creatures. Our minds are interesting things. But do you remember when we were working through the doctrinal statement of the church, and we dealt with this thing called total depravity. Okay, we hate this idea, but the Bible teaches it. Total depravity teaches that our sin permeates all through who we are. Our mind is tainted by sin. Our emotions are tainted by sin. Our will is tainted by sin. Our body is tainted by sin. Now, total depravity does not mean you are as bad as you could possibly be. Theologians use the phrase absolute depravity. Total depravity says there's just not any part of you that's not influenced by sin. So our mind itself has been impacted by our sin nature. That's why we are told we have to fix it. Before we can do anything else, before we can do whatever action it is that God wants us to do, we need to change our mind. And how do we do that? 
If you want to, turn to Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Starting in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What needs to happen to our minds? They have to be transformed. It wasn't I knew this set of information, and now I know this set of information, therefore I know something different. Our mind itself has to be transformed. It has to be changed. So we are no longer thinking the things of this world, but thinking the things of God. Why? So that we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Before we do any action, we need to prepare our minds, we need to train our minds, we need to focus our minds on the things of God. How do we do that? Well, we do that through the Scripture through the reading of the Scripture, through meditation of the Scripture, through memorization of the Scripture, we begin to think God's thoughts. It isn't just a matter of having some new ideas. It's changing the pattern by which we think. And that's what we need to do. Now, yes, sir. Go ahead. Doesn't it say uh, that we become a new man? Yes. So what is the difference between these practical things that you're doing and uh, living out the new man? His observation, his question is, doesn't the scripture say when we are saved, we become a new creation? And the answer is definitely yes. Because if the answer wasn't yes, none of these commands would be possible. We couldn't do them. We in our, well, what does this passage say? Our, our ignorance of our, in our former passions. In our ignorance, being driven by our passions, we cannot do the things of God. We have to be transformed into a new creation. Now, I'll just tell you, this causes me grief at times. I mean, if God's going to make me new, why doesn't he just fix all these sin problems? You know he could do that. Why doesn't he do that? My slight opinion is that he wants us to live a life of total dependence upon him. 
He wants us to live a life of obedience to him as we conform our lives to his image. I suspect he could have just made us holy. Not just declared us holy, but made us holy. But he wanted us to live lives of dependence upon him. So he gives us instructions. He doesn't give us a sin-free life this side of heaven. And I'm not sure I like that answer. I would just like him to zap me and be done with it. I told, I've given you this illustration before. I heard a pastor one time, and he said when he became a believer, he had two abiding sins. When he became a believer, one of those just went away. He had no desire for it all. The other one he fought for the rest of his life. He said, God wanted to show me that he could, and he wanted me to show me that I needed to be dependent upon him. Personally, just zap it and get done with it. (laughs) And our hope, we're going to talk about hope in a moment, is that he's going to do that someday. That's called glorification, which is in heaven. So I gave you the answer, but I don't like the answer. Go ahead. Well, I guess what my thinking is, is the process, in other words, if you don't have something, and you are trying to do what you said, it would seem as though the process would be different if you had it and had to work it out. Why? Well, because it's in there. Right, and I believe that. I agree with that. Okay. Okay. I mean, we mentioned at the beginning, we are declared to be righteous. And all the rest of our Christian life, the process of sanctification is working out what God has put into us. Working out what he has declared us to be. That doesn't mean that it's not work. The illustration that I use is Joshua is told to go into the promised land. He's, and God tells him, I have given you all of this stuff. Woohoo! I've won the battle. But guess what? It's still going to be a battle. Yes, sir. I guess what we're saying, if I understand you, it's not earning it. It's no. It requires effort. It requires our cooperation. Acceptance. Yes, Phil. In Romans, if you've been, verse later says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, Hmm? he has unlocked the box of your faith at that spot, Hmm? now let it grow. Yeah. And that's the way you accomplish all of God's tasks. The transforming of our mind, the Preparing our mind for action is impossible without God having worked salvation in you and God giving you the Holy Spirit to accomplish it day by day. But you, I, we as fallen human beings can look the Holy Spirit in the eye and go, eh, not today. 
And that's why the scripture continues to tell us what we ought to be doing. Now, if you begin to think that this is earning your salvation, you've fallen off a theological cliff over there. If you believe that because you've been saved, you don't have to do anything, you have fallen off a theological cliff over here. That's called legalism, and this is called antinomianism. And somewhere, Paul and Peter and Jesus understood the intersection of these two things. My mind has difficulty with it. And people I talk to have difficulty with it. Because they want to say, it's all of God, I'm going to sit in my easy chair and twiddle my thumbs. Or they're going to say, I have to work my buns off, and if I do real well, when I die, God will let me in because I'm a good person. You're never going to be that good. It's just not going to happen. God has provided salvation for us, and we are to work it out. Now, we are to transform our minds so that we are thinking the things of God, the things of Christ. We do that by studying God, studying the scripture, learning the things of God. How would Jesus, oh, what would Jesus do? How does God want me to respond in this situation? You can go through the scripture and find thousands of examples of how Jesus responded to things differently than I in my sinful state would respond to them. Before we do anything else, we need to gird up, we need to prepare our minds. Now, just to make sure that we don't fall into another trap. There's traps everywhere, right? The Enlightenment principle was that reason could solve all the world's problems. I, using my mind, my God-given mind, that was back when they were still kind of religious, my God-given mind can solve, well, no. God gave you your mind to accomplish per certain tasks, your mind is not going to save you. You're not going to think your way into salvation. None of us think that well. But God has given us a mind, and he wants us to use that mind to think the thoughts of God so that we are prepared to do the things that God would have us to do. One more verse, and we'll move on to the next two words. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I would love to have a complete lesson and work our way through that list of words. Good, excellent, pure, etc. We can't do that today. But what is it telling us? 
what you think about does affect how you think. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? We are told to focus our mind on the things of God. Now, I will be the first to admit, there is sometimes during the day that you have to think about something else. You know, if I have a job, then somebody's paying me, and they're paying me to take my mind and use it to accomplish whatever it is they want me to build. Okay? We can have a discussion about doing that and thinking the thoughts of God simultaneously, and that's a good thought. But my question is, when you don't have to be thinking about something else, what are you thinking about? Okay? I think I know the answer to my, but I'm not going to tell you. Just think about that. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. What is the action? Well, we're going to talk about that actually later in the book of 1 Peter. As we work through our discussion of Peter, we're going to see things that we are to do. But all of this is predicated on preparing ourselves in order to do that. The first thing is we've got to see the things that we need to do. Do you remember the Romans chapter 12? The transforming of your mind so that you can discern what God's will is. Sometimes we don't know what God wants us to do because we're not prepared to do it. Our minds are not prepared. We do not see the action. Therefore, we do not do the action. As I said, more about that in the weeks to come. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? What does it mean to be drunk? No, I do not want any personal examples. Years ago, um, we took the family to California and we drove. We really wanted to see the Grand Canyon. Well, for many, many, many years, I would take a couple of business trips a year to Las Vegas. So I told Teresa, I will take you to Las Vegas. So here I am at Las Vegas with four of the children. I have, don't have any idea how many of them. We just get there at 6 o'clock in the evening, check into the hotel, get on the elevator, and two younger couples get on the elevator. And this lady turns to one of my daughters and goes, don't ever drink. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the guys says, don't hit her. They were happy drunk. But I don't want her to, it's 6 o'clock and they were plastered. So we put our stuff in the room, we walk 5,000 miles, and we're eating at a restaurant on the second story of this building, glass windows. There's an escalator outside, and we're sitting there, and this guy goes tumbling down the escalator. <laughs> it's 7.30, and he's plastered. We know that drunkenness hinders the proper operation of your mind, 
your senses, your emotions, everything about you. But being sober-minded isn't just a discussion about not drinking or drinking. I don't care, by the way. What it is, is what are the outside influences that are influencing the way we live our lives? Some translations of, this, of the Bible translate this word, be very self-controlled, self-disciplined. Now, there are those, because I've heard Christians who don't like that word self-controlled because it has that evil, awful word self in there. Obviously, we're supposed to be spirit-controlled. But if you do not have the discipline to control yourself when the Spirit tells you to do something, you're not going to do it because you're going to, well, you're under the influence of something else. We are to be sober-minded. We are not to be distracted by all the things that are around us. Guess what? We're distracted by all the things around us. Do you remember the parable of the soils? You know, some of the seed falls on the hard ground, doesn't even take root. Some on the shallow ground. Some on the ground that the thorns grow up and choke it out. And what does Jesus tell the disciples that represents the worries and cares of this world? Choking out the life within you. Being sober-minded is to not be controlled by outside stuff. We prepare our minds. We are sober-minded. Why? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's start at the end of that sentence. What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, we know that Jesus was revealed in the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy projecting forward. We know that Jesus was born at a particular time in a particular place. He lived his life. He was crucified. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That obviously is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But now these people are standing here on this side of all of that. But the promise was given. Remember, he ascended. Everybody's looking up. You'd be looking up. I'd be looking up. What are you looking for? Don't you know that he went up and he's going to come back? We know that there is a return of Christ. Now, let's back up to last week's lesson, or the week before. It kind of was in both. Even though it is necessary for a time that you have certain trials, life's tough, bad things happen. Unpleasant things happen. Difficult things happen. And in this particular case, 
it's difficulty caused by their belief in Jesus Christ. And Peter is telling them the solution to all of that is hope. Remember we had this discussion last week about hope? We are so wrapped up in the idea that hope is just wishful thinking. Biblically, hope is faith in that God has accomplished certain things in the past, that God has fulfilled every promise that he has made, and that the promises that are in the future will be fulfilled also. It is a confidence that God will complete what God started. He who began the work will complete the work. That is the hope. Wait a minute. Things are bad right now. Yes. What do we need? Well, I know what the answer to that question is. We need the bad stuff to go away. No. Remember our discussion. Tested, genuine faith brings glory to God and to us. God wants us to have tested, genuine faith. There was that strange phrase in there, right? If necessary. We're not going back to that. What we want is the pain to go away. What God wants is for us to set our hope on the return of Christ. He who started will complete. He who ascended will descend once again. Our hope is in what God has done for us. And I can't resist the urge. I'm going to do it again. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. What gives us hope? Do I have to read it again? According to His great mercy, He has caused us. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Here I am undergoing some level of persecution. We had this discussion, remember. Everything from martyrdom to just people saying nasty stuff about us. We are somewhere being persecuted and my mind thinks, oh shoot, it's not real. Why am I being persecuted for this? And God says, have hope. Do you remember what we said at the beginning? There's really only two commands in this sentence. The first one is have hope. Now, you may think that's kind of weird. It's like a command, love somebody. <laughs> well, I can't be commanded to love somebody. Well, you better be because the scripture is, gives you that command. 
But you see, we have so interpreted love to be an emotional thing that the idea of commanding someone to love is bizarre. And we think the same thing about hope. God commands us to have hope. What do we hope for? We hope that inflation goes away. We hope that somebody else wins the next election. No, we're not going to go there. I would say we hope the Cowboys win, but it's too late for that. No, seriously, we hope for a lot of things. I hope for more happiness for my kids. I hope for a lot of things. But I need to prepare my mind, gird up my mind. I need to be sober-minded, not driven by everything around me. And I need to set my hope on Christ. He who began will complete. He who ascended will descend. What does it mean to prepare your mind for action? Set your hope on Christ. What does it mean to be sober-minded, to set your mind on the things of Christ? Because you see, I, forget you, I set my mind on a lot of things. And sometimes we don't see the hope. Peter has been called the apostle of hope because of this book. The theme that runs through the book is hope. Times are hard for the recipients of this letter. Times are hard for us. And what we need is to focus on the promises of God. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you remember how we ended the discussion of of, um, salvation? Undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, this is our salvation, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. That's just repeated again. The scripture talks about salvation past. I have been justified. The scripture talks about salvation present. I am being sanctified. And the fulfillment of all of that is salvation future, which is our glorification. Where that final taint of sin is removed from our lives. I don't know about you. That sounds pretty good. Why doesn't God just give it to me back here? Yes, sir. What's VIM? Okay. What it is, is 
First, yeah. I mean, it's a strange thing. We know this is true, by the way. You know? I don't particularly love you. I'm not even sure I like you. But studies have shown that if I start acting like I love you, eventually I'll love you. You go, that's weird. Well, it is weird if we view love as simply an emotion. But if we believe that love is looking out for the good of the beloved with the vision, the intentionality, doing things intentionally, studies have shown that works, by the way. That's the only reason, way God can command us to love. We, in our modern 21st century, we'll start at the latter part of the 20th century, have become convinced that our feelings are all that are important. I feel this way, therefore it must be true. That's just not true. Feelings are real, by the way, okay? But our mind has been tainted by our sin, our will has been tainted by our sin, and our feelings have been tainted by our sin. Biblically speaking, our feelings were never to be the driver of anything in our lives. They're part of who we are. Don't get me wrong. Feelings are real. Sometimes, to follow that analogy, we feel like we have hope, and sometimes we don't. But we are to keep our mind focused on what God has done for us. Now, I read a lot of newspapers and magazines and stuff, but you know what? If that's all you're reading, you're going to be depressed. <laughs> Just saying. <sighs> We've made it through one verse. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Wow. We said in lesson number one that there is a discussion today about whether Peter is writing this to a Jewish audience or a Gentile audience. And this verse is one of those verses that leads scholars to believe that it was written to a Gentile audience. Because a Jewish audience, even if they were not believers in Jesus at least were not ignorant of the ways of God. They had the law. Um, that's probably true, but I could say they were ignorant too. Okay. What Peter is saying is there was a time before your conversion that you were not being driven by what God would have you to do, Instead, you were being driven by your passions. Now, the word passion is interesting. Um, I, I don't want to admit to this, but I'll do it anyway. You ever see that nice, great movie, Legally Blonde? <laughs> I actually watched the last scene of it last night. Why? 
Because the professor at the beginning of the, the course of study of law tells the class that Aristotle says law is reason devoid of passion. Whereas the character in Legally Blonde ends by saying, I think she's wrong because it's passion that gives us the drive to seek after that which is good. The problem with that is that we, all of us on this side of Rousseau, are convinced that we're good people. Therefore, our passions are good people. Our passions tell us what is good. We ought to follow our passions. The scripture says your passions are ignorant. On this side of Rousseau, Aristotle understood that our passions is what drives us to lynch people. Our passions are what drive us to cut people off in traffic. Our passions are what drive us to kill six million Jews in the Holocaust. That's what our passions do. Our passions are just like our mind, will, and emotion. <gasps> They've been tainted by sin. And Peter is telling them, this is what used to drive you. Don't do that anymore. Instead, instead of being driven by your passions, transform your mind, keep your focus on Christ, and be holy. And maybe next week we'll make it through eight words. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation you have given us. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to set our hope fully on you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.